Frank Spring, joined as always by everyone's favorite area man, Ellie Jacobs. Ahoy, Ellie. Hey, Frank. As always, we'd like to thank all of our listeners for their comments, both positive and negative. We've actually started reading them for a change and urge everybody to subscribe and rate us on iTunes or wherever they listen to their podcasts. Uh, As uh, some of you may know, we're using a new podcast hosting service. We're no longer using SoundCloud exclusively. We've moved to something called anchor.fm. Um, sort of coincidentally that it's nautical themed, but we'll take it. It was entirely um, for that reason. Yeah. Um, and please follow us on Twitter at, at taking ship and that's ship with a P as in plurality. Plus, as we mentioned last week, our website is up and live and people are actually visiting it. We have a counter that you can't see, but we can. So we know how many people are visiting it and we'll just tell you a lot more people, more people than you can imagine. A large number of, an extremely large and historically unprecedented, a huge number of very, very important people, all of whom are extremely happy to be on our tremendous and wonderful website. Yeah. And according to our IP research, only most of those people are Graham visiting repeatedly. Uh, So if you want to be like the cool kids, go to www.takingship.com. Finally, the t-shirts are really happening. This is going to happen, folks. I've already designed uh, a onesie for Batgirl that will be appearing in the next two weeks. Uh, so please contact contact us either over Twitter or through the website contact form and let us know how many you want and what sizes. Again, t-shirts are much like whiskey that way. Uh, we're still working a little bit on pricing, but uh, we will be very reasonable. Um, but give us an idea of how many we should order, and that will obviously affect pricing because, you know, the whole supply and demand thing. Yes, yeah. that's exactly right. We're, we are running on, we're, we're relearning the basic principles of economics here, uh, one podcast t-shirt at, at a time. All right, so we are joined uh, today again by uh, Nigist Abebe. Uh, Nigist, uh, you may recall, joined us uh, in the summer, I think it was, of last year. Uh, she is back. We are extremely pleased to have her. Uh, Nigist is the co-founder of All in Our Co., which is a consulting practice that works with social impact startups and now a Virginia-based political professional as well in the Democratic Party. Nigist, welcome back to Taking Ship. Thanks for having me back. We are very happy to have you. And what we'd like to talk about today, we're going to kick this off uh, with a discussion of a program about the Democratic Party uh, and, its, and its activities uh, that went by, uh, that you've been part of, that went under the terrific title, Fuck It, We'll Do It Ourselves, Building an Inclusive Resistance. Uh, first of all, I'm all for any project that begins with Fuck It, uh, that, that I think shows the proper spirit. Uh, what is this project? I usually end projects with that. That's, that's exactly what <laughs> <usually. laughs> It is nice to have it as the opening. Right. <laughs> really, really get your, you know, really, yeah, really get the contempt out there early. Yeah, that's, I hadn't really thought about that. This is just getting ahead of the curve where we usually end it. Terrific. Uh, so what is Fuck It, We'll Do It Ourselves? So I have to give mad props to Monique Alcala, who uh, currently works with CASA and uh, also is around in democratic politics for coming up with the name and the idea of the panel. And so the whole concept and what she reached out to me about was just taking the time to elevate voices of women and people of color who've been on the front lines of democratic organizing and politics lately and have a conversation about how do we really uh, continue to elevate women and people of color and LGBTQIA and 
folks of different abilities in the movement and give them the space to not just like be advocated for, but to um, both be heard and be given the opportunity to speak and lead and organize things themselves. Because if these are the groups that we're fighting for, then surely they know how to do it better than some of the rest of us. And what is the, why the wonderful title and attitude and, and sense of independence, fuck it, we'll do it ourselves. This is really good, but it implies that someone else should be doing it. Uh, and instead it is being taken on, uh, but it's, it's being taken on by, by yourself and, and other people who are involved in this program. What's that about? Uh, yeah. So I think, um, I think we can all acknowledge that when it comes to politics in general, like white guys, like they are everywhere else, have um, perhaps a disproportionate amount of the positions in power. We are certainly oh. enormously influential on this podcast. I can, I can say we have a stranglehold on power in this podcast, and I will be damned if we are letting go of any of it. This <laughs> podcast is his kingdom. Someone mute me. Sorry, yes, absolutely. Please go. But um, especially in, in, in democratic politics, um, it seems sometimes especially egregious because the uh, straight white guys are a minority of democratic voters, but they are by far the majority of the people you see, whether it's at the top of the ticket, the top of the campaign staff, the top of the fundraising staff, all of that. They're, um, they continue to have a disproportionate hold on leadership positions within the progressive movement. And that has other trickle-down effects that lead to um, I would say a cognitive dissonance and in a, a practical dissonance between what we say our mission is and how we're actually executing it and what we're actually choosing to prioritize and how we do it. And I think what we've been seeing post 2016 is honestly a, a general spirit of fuck it, we'll do it ourselves, um, which is women and people of color and people of all abilities, spectrums and all of these inclusive uh, all of these groups that have not historically been included in the rooms of power, just saying, screw it, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it myself. I'm going to build the organization. I'm going to lead a protest. I'm going to lead a march. I'm going to run for office. And uh, I think that is very refreshing. And I think it is definitely leading to good things happening on and for the left. What are some of the examples of, of of some of the organizations or people that have taken it upon themselves to not not to wait to be invited to organize or included in other organizing, but have, have done it themselves? So I think uh, ADAPT is one of the one that I think is really important. The Crypt the Vote movement that they had and the way they were protesting in the halls of the Capitol was incredibly powerful for not just the um, for making a public and high, very high profile point about what it would mean for some parts of the American population if Medicaid was cut or if the Affordable Care Act was repealed. And there were some photos that went viral of people in wheelchairs being dragged out of the Capitol and things like that, that, you know, people just standing up or people just showing up and going in and doing the protesting that they want to see in the world and fighting for the policies they want to see in the world. I'll also say, I think within the state of Virginia, because that's where I work, um, you saw it in all of the people who decided to run for delegate last year. And the fact that in the 2018 session, something that probably, I mean, there are a number of things about Virginia in 2018 that caused Thomas Jefferson to roll in his grave. But the idea of a mother <laughs> breastfeeding <laughs> on the floor. Yes. But the idea of a woman, an Asian American woman with a newborn breastfeeding on the floor of the General Assembly, like, 
that never would have happened. But we have two women who ran for office last year who had like were pregnant and had babies oh early God, Thomas on. Jefferson would have died of indignation. This is awesome. Yes. Well, especially because one of them was an African-American woman who was also one of the first black women to graduate from VMI. Thomas Jefferson is very unhappy. He's had a a real bad year. (laughs) It's it's not been good. I feel like he would have spun it differently. The rest of us. I'm sure he would have found a way to (laughs) come out on top. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But yeah, so I think you just see a lot of people just stepping up to the plate and realizing that... um, they can do it too. How is this different from uh, the way that these communities have organized themselves in the past? Uh, because this, the, some communities have, organi- have, have organizations that represent them. This isn't, for many of these communities, their first foray into politics, but this is, there's clearly new energy and some new models. How is what they're doing now different from the way it's been done before? Mm, that's a good question. And I'll have a limited answer because I can only speak to a few realms and I know that the history of protest in other communities is long and extensive and I'm not going to try to encapsulate all of them. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think it's the, it's the across all fronts part. There was this piece, um, I think it was back at the end of 2015 or early 2016 when there was the height of some of the Bernie Hillary divide where somebody was making a point that then the, in the activist spectrum, there are people who are agitators and there are people who are organizers and you need both in order for any social change to happen. You need somebody who's constantly being loud and flamboyant and who's pushing like pushing everybody to the edge of the Overton window and beyond on policy and creating headlines and things like that. So it's constantly people are paying attention to it. And then you need people who have white papers and who are like know how to tap the halls of power and get legislation written and on the floor and passed and to change regulations and things like that. And you have to have both of them in order for anything to succeed. Um, And I think what you're seeing is a peak in across the entire spectrum of activism and social change movements that you're seeing organizers and people who are policy experts figuring out and working hard to figure out how to be allowed people figuring out how to elect the right people into office, things like that, as well as people who are more willing than ever to show up at protests and other types of visual stunts to continue to not let any of these issues like fade from the American consciousness. To what extent is this motivated by uh, the affront of the election of Donald Trump as a triumph of that way? And this may be a distinction without a difference as a triumph of the ideals that he represents, all of which are, he personally and the ideals he represents are abhorrent to most of these communities, if not all of them. And to what extent is it a protest? Is it a reaction to uh, the failure of the Democratic Party to keep him out? I realize it seems like it's the same thing, but it's actually two different things. There's one person who is a defined enemy and another or entity or organization that was meant to be a friend and, and has just fallen down on the job uh, or maybe wasn't the friend that, they, that, that we've always sort of hoped and thought it was. So I think that's always an interesting question. And I, as somebody who has worked for the party, uh, like I definitely struggle with because I understand why people get frustrated. But one of the chief things I come back to is the party is only as good as the people who, who decide to build it and create it. And that it's totally valid to have criticisms of the democratic party. But um, one of the most effective ways to change it is to join it and to get all your friends to join it and persuade people and to change the direction that it goes in. Or, Uh, you know, your senator from Vermont. 
Well, that's that's what that's that's one model certainly. <laughs> but no, and I think that that's. I mean, and, and I'm I'm really glad that I'm really glad that you said that actually because that's that is certainly the view that I would take. And, and Ellie, I don't know if you could subscribe to this as well, but it's it's easy. Like there is nothing about being critical of the Demo- there's nothing about being a democrat that means that you can't be critical of the democratic party uh, and and indeed the only way that this thing is going to change is uh, if people bring this kind of energy inside the tent because i actually will say this to the credit of certainly the folks who are working in a large number of the committees in spite of a you know in spite of a, of a perception that maybe they're not as receptive as they they should be but the party isn't changing fast enough those are all you know maybe reasonable critiques i actually think you would find a lot of people who are involved in the actual infrastructure of the party who would agree with most of these critiques and who would like to see them changed as well and who are doing what and, and are and are doing their part but there's also an electoral war on you know there need that we need people bodies in you know energy and new insights yeah I, yeah I i agree with that as the idea because if you look at the flip side right and you can't really say if, if somebody's doing something well or not well unless you have something to compare it to and if you compare it to the republican side there was no never anyone agitating for anything different on the inside they were all company men literally and carly fiorina um and what happened was, is you had the one guy come in who wasn't the company man and he blew up the whole thing. So even when you're dealing with, you know, let's say Bernie Sanders is the guy who's going to blow up the thing. He's still closer to the, the quote unquote democratic reservation to use a pejorative than uh, Trump was to the Republican. So, you know, yeah, the democratic party, I think uh, welcomes dissent and disagreement much with far open, more open arms than the Republican Party does. Yeah, and I think the Democratic Party is grappling with it and is making concerted efforts to improve. That said, I think I think one of the things that fuels criticism of the Democratic Party as well is that communities have been, and I, I mean, I faced this when I was out trying to register voters in Hampton, Virginia, like communities that have been waiting for change and hoping for change and haven't seen like change that's going to improve their life on the day to day have valid criticisms of any, any organization that has power that's promising to make their lives better because the Democrats had eight years in power with um, Barack Obama. And it is a fair thing for people to say like, my life hasn't changed enough. My life hasn't improved enough. I don't think that's solely the fault of Barack Obama or the Democratic Party. But I think that there, I, I can understand when people feel frustrated or unexcited and decide not to vote because they feel like change isn't happening fast enough and they start to become incredibly cynical of anybody who tells them they, they can help. Sure. It's pretty weak tea to go to a community that had those kind of expectations for real improvement in their lives and say, well, the reason we weren't able to do it all is because of the intransigence of the Republican Congress. But like, right. there, is, there is truth in that. But, you know, I mean, but at, the, but at the same time, you can understand how someone would be angry and disappointed. I mean, I, that's that's fine. But what you're giving me is excuses, not results. Right. When you tell the big story of, you know, Barack Obama comes in and he's uh, above politics because he's different than everybody else and the hope and change, et cetera, et cetera. You can't then turn around and say, well, I was prevented because of the the bluegrass turtle from doing what I wanted, even though I campaigned saying that I was I was the other and none of this stuff was going to impact me. So, yeah, I think that that's the idea that there were people who got ginned up over the concepts of hope and change and excited for 
a new generation of leadership and and a new color of leadership. And eight years later, kind of looked at the scoreboard and said, eh. And that's where you ended up with, you know, the slumping poll numbers or, or voting totals. You end up with the, I mean, Frank, you and I have talked about this a number of times. And at some point we should get some serious pollsters on and really dive into it. But the Obama to Trump phenomenon of voters. So, yeah, like, you know, signing up voters when they're cynical isn't the easiest thing in the world. And I also think there's something for... Um... I, I do think one of the most viable criticisms of 2016 is the lack of a persuasion campaign. And I think that Democrats would learn their lesson well to remember that even if we have the numbers of voters, we have to be persistent, dogged, and thorough in how we make connections with them and make them feel part, feel like somebody is there to serve them. And that when we only show up trying to get them to vote and we haven't put the time in to develop a relationship um, or make the case, like that's a problem. And, and I speak to my experience in Hampton Roads, Virginia, where, yes, I mean, that Hampton, Virginia was going to go blue. Like there was no doubt about it. It was just a question of by how much. And the conversations you have are not with people about who they're going to vote for, but whether or not they're going to vote at all. And that's still persuasion. It's not just mobilization. You are still actively persuading people, not just making plans to vote, but why they need to do that. That's an excellent point. The, the distinction between an undecided voter who would be a traditional uh, persuasion, that is your, your prototypical persuasion target, right? Uh, the distinction between an undecided voter and an unmotivated Democratic voter, what you would think of as a, as a traditional get out the vote target, is actually, it appears, based on 2016, narrower than than one might think, right? They may get two different numbers, uh, you know, crudely on the one to five sheet. Of course, there's a much, much more sophisticated way of signing right. the values and so forth, but they may get two different numbers, but the way you approach them is actually not as radically different as we thought it was uh, in the apps. And for folks who may not necessarily be as familiar with this, what we're talking about is the persuasion campaign, in generally speaking, political campaigns involve a period of persuasion in which you are making a concerted effort, often by door knocks, uh, to go to voters who are undecided and talk them around, uh, you know, persuade them personally to support your candidate. In 2016, the Democratic Party, particularly the Hillary campaign, uh, pushed, used persuasion, did persuasion differently. They did it primarily through, through bought media, uh, or and and or abstained from uh, from doing it at all in some areas in favor of a get out the vote heavy operation because and this is an understandable decision although one that I think proved very very costly indeed get out the vote is a lot cheaper persuasion is very expensive but you can't you can't save your way out of winning an election well, pers- think- persuasion also can't be faked whereas get out the vote you can just drive people to the poll stations to actually motivate people which is what persuasion is supposed to do. That's where, like, that's where the prose comes in. The GOTV professional in me's headaches just exploded. But yeah, you're not, you're not entirely wrong. Sorry, niggas, you were going to say. Sorry, well, niggas. <laughs> I think the other part of that, though, too, is um, I, it was especially necessary and perhaps unanticipatedly necessary in 2016 because of the like onslaught, the relentless daily onslaught of misogyny. And that, like, Hillary Clinton is, was a unique candidate. She was somebody who was known for a very long time. And I honestly, I, I reflect sometimes on, like, what if Barack Obama hadn't run in 2008, but he'd run in 2028? 
And what would it have been different if somebody had known that he was coming up in political power and spent 20 years trying to denigrate his entire career, fuel scandals, and create a general sense of mistrust? And I think that was something that was sorely underestimated by the entirety of America, and especially the media, was that the media was going, the, the national narrative around the first woman period was going to be hard, that the first woman to receive a major party nomination was Hillary Clinton. Like, there was just, people needed to be hearing from not their television a story about Hillary Clinton or a story about the Democratic mission to motivate them and get them out to vote, because otherwise they were just constantly surrounded and swimming with reasons to just not give a damn about oh, gotcha. the election. And when you have a small persuasion pool, persuasion gets more expensive. And best friend and it's you know the easiest persuasion targets are ones who are undecided because they don't know the candidates all that well when you have a candidate who's been subjected to a 25 year you know a historically unprecedented 25 year campaign of character assassination pretty much everyone knows who she is and and have their opinions formed your persuasion targets are fewer and farther between but if you fail to do that persuasion as we have seen you leave people on the table in important states but it also has a kind of cultural knock-on effect for the way you do GOTV which is to your point earlier right yeah all right. So, you know, I think this and this goes into a, a this is the politics of, I think, a more fundamental that's the sharp end of the politics, actually, in the persuasion GTV question of a fundamental uh, issue at the heart of the Democratic Party that I want to talk about now, uh, which is how the Democratic Party pursues its social mission and the way that I would let's we'll, we'll get a quick quick some quick terms out here and then we'll actually get into the into the conversation itself. I used to work for someone who, uh, whenever he was in a meeting and someone would, would say, well, we're going to start with the definition of terms, we'll just get up and walk out, which I think is generally speaking good policy. So I will be fast about this. But the, view, the, way that, the way that I've tended to think about this politically is the Democratic Party has a platform that is about extending equality of opportunity to all Americans to be part of the American deal. The American deal, as we have defined, and Bill Clinton, this is Bill Clinton's formulation, he said it best, you work hard, you play by the rules, and you win. And we could, there is, how you define each of those terms is the stuff of incredibly, uh, is incredible, is, you know, is the stuff of incredible, is the stuff of real, uh, you know, real debate and discussion. But that's it. You work hard, you play by the rules, and you win. Providing that equality of opportunity to every American is one platform. A part of that platform that politically has been, I think, has been almost kept separate is making sure that they, that equality of opportunity is extended to the for the American deal is extended to Americans for to whom the deal was never extended ever. All right. So there are people, there's the whole country that we are trying to lift up, that we're trying to offer the American deal to. And then there are people who, by virtue of their demographic, have never been by you know, by you know, have never been extended that opportunity uh, at all, and and this is you know particularly true on racial lines. It has obviously has you know it's obviously true on gender lines, uh, sexual orientation. Any way you want to cut it, there are people whose humanity is questioned at different levels all the time, and for them, access to the American deal is always harder. At the peak of this, of course, are you know uh, white uh, heterosexual cisgendered guys, people like me, to whom the deal is extended from birth and and maintained always. Right. So those that is what when I say the social mission, that's that's what I mean. That particular part of the platform that is often run politically separate that involves extending the American deal to communities who've never had it extended to them before or to whom it has not been extended equally. Now, there is a part. There's a debate within the Democratic Party 
which puts those two things at odds. You saw this in uh, in a debate about whether the white whether the uh, the Democratic Party needs an economic message for white working class voters, uh, or if it need or you know or you know if it needs a social message. Uh, the term identity politics comes up pejoratively and critically in this a lot. I'm not a huge fan of that particular practice, uh, but the uh, but the argument plays out with someone citing evidence. Uh, with findings that Trump voters that Trump's voters uh, feared social displacement, um, some many perhaps were overtly and outright racist, uh, and voted against the Democratic Party because they saw it as a party that was supportive of people of color. Uh, there's more substantive uh, evidence to the effect that there can be a kind of a political cost uh, to uh, the to uh, the Democratic Party pursuing its social mission. Uh, there's a good piece, a good study by uh, Mara Cecilia Ostfeld at uh, the University of Michigan quite recently. That came to the conclusion that white Democrats uh, who learn about Democratic outreach to Latinos become less supportive of Democrats. So there can be a kind of a political, but what is the what the political cost is to pursuing the social mission in your politics and in your policy is a subject, I think, of very live debate. Now, the GOP has made hay out of race, political hay out of race before. They've done, they did extremely well out of the Southern strategy in the 1960s. It is a play that they run all the time. So first we're going to go, and we're seeing it increasingly and almost exclusively now as the talking point, in one way or another, as the talking points of the Republican Party. In media, particularly, uh, opposition to the social mission, which again is about conferring opportunity and humanity upon all Americans, uh, comes up a lot. Ellie has a theory for why this is, and then we're going to kick the discussion off. Ellie, can we have your theory about why the, why this is the conser- the most common conservative talking point? Yeah, I mean, th- there's a lot to be unpacked there, and and people who have told who have heard me tell my story about being called a troglodyte will understand some of that, and maybe that'll come. Which in later. time? Exactly, but the the primary time, really, um, the time you didn't the the time the other person called me a troglodyte that wasn't you. Uh, I have a general theory about sort of, and I'm going to differentiate between the Republican Party and conservatives. Uh, And what I define as conservatives are the weekly standard national review commentary set, uh, who I read a decent amount of and and follow a lot of them on on, of their kind of luminaries on Twitter. Uh, I mean, Bill Crystal, everybody should follow just to clown on because, I mean, can you find another man who's been more wrong about more things more often on Earth? Uh, No. But uh, uh, my general theory is when it comes to conservatives, and again, separating it from the Republican Party, conservatives and their uh, ideology and theories, and people should go back and listen to our uh, uh, excellent podcast with Noah Rothman from Commentary a few months ago, where we went into this a little bit, um, the ideas of uh, their economic ideas and their social ideas. It's really w- w- what, where my thinking comes from. Uh, they have cons- consistently lost every single battle that they have fought over the last 30 years uh, when it comes to economic policy, when it comes to social policy. Uh, economic policy, uh, you know, Reagan uh, blew up the idea of limited government, even though that he campaigned on limited government when he increased spending. But we can make an, we can make an excuse for Reagan, and this is going to go on a little bit, but it's an important part of this overall conversation we're going to have. Um, Reagan blew up the budget and deficits because he was trying to destroy the Soviet Union and upping military spending was an integral part of that. So fine, we'll kind of say that that was the case. 
George Bush comes into office, he tries to fix things, he has to raise taxes. Uh-oh, we blew up part of the economic platform of the conservative party. Bill Clinton comes in, he essentially runs the economic, some of the economic aspects of the conservative part of the conservative parts of the Republican Party, some of which were because he had to cut deals with Newt Gingrich and save his own ass to get from getting impeached. But he also created the longest, uh, P, uh, the longest economic expansion in the country's history. George Bush comes in, blows the whole thing up again using conservative uh, um, uh, 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 ideas. Uh, and then Barack Obama comes in running on a distinctly democratic platform and changes it all up again. Mitt Romney comes in. Um, and essentially, the, the, so then you look at some of the social fights or some of the specific fights over some specific issues. So we know that the tax issue doesn't really work because you need to bring in money uh, in order to be able to afford things. And you can't just starve the, what's the Grover Norquest quote? Uh, Shrink the government so you can drown it in a bathtub? Yeah, that's the one. Right, which is obviously at this point a, just a bucket of horse shit. Um, but when Obama pushes forward what is essentially the Heritage Foundation created healthcare plan that Mitt Romney put into place in Massachusetts, uh, the Republican Party had to fight it because they had to fight it because it was Barack Obama. Uh, when it came to same-sex marriage, it was the same. It, it pushed all the way to the highest court in the land, a court that is 5-4 conservative jurists, and they lost both times. So this isn't the, that they're losing at the ballot box. They're losing at every aspect of American society and the constitutional hierarchy of things. Therefore, to bring this back around to where the conversation started, they are now focused on some of the social issues above all else. So when a conservative writer like, God help me for even saying her, I, we can only say her name once because I think if you say it three times, she shows up. But Ann Coulter, um, when she gets you know booed at a college campus, the whole conservative Twitter sphere and, and, and Fox and everything else goes batshit insane. Um, and that's really, these are the things that they are now relegated in a very negative way of having to focus on because they have lost every other battle at this point. So they've lost their social, they've lost their finance, they've lost their, their, their fight to be the party of fiscal responsibility. They've lost, uh, Who the boy Iraq did they? War, yeah. The Iraq war shot their credibility as the party of national security to pieces. Uh, they are left with, uh, the party of uh, social conservatism in opposition to the democratic party social mission. Because how does that formulation seem to you? And is there, an electoral cost to pursuing the social mission for the Democratic Party, do you think? So I don't think so. And I think that identity politics as a phrase always cracks me up because it's just like, oh, white men. Like, it's been your identity politics all along and somebody shows up and all of a sudden we're upset <laughs> that people care about identity <laughs> politics. Like, just mm -hmm. somebody else showed up at the playground doesn't mean that, like, we weren't all doing the same damn thing all along, it's always been identity politics. Like it's always, this has always been a strong theme in American politics from the very, very, very beginning. Um, however you were slicing identity, like that is what matters and that is what connects voters to the electoral process. Um, so that part always just makes me laugh because they only care because now you have to share it. Um, but I think as a whole, I don't, I don't think that the cost of the social mission, um, I think it is negligible if it exists at all. And I think, um, so I was moved when I went to the, I was in Montgomery for the Equal Justice um, Initiatives opening of the lynching memorial. They had this Peace and Justice Summit. And I was really 
Um, I have been thinking about something Michelle Alexander said quite a lot, which is that she doesn't like the term resistance because we aren't the resistance. We're the new reality of what America is and is becoming. We are the new um, America, the new country that is being born, and Trump and his ilk are the resistance to that. And I think that is true, Ellie, to your point about all of the ways they have failed. Like, they are a dying vision of America, and they know this. And they um, are they are resisting us. And I think part of what's happening too is that we, part of what has happened post-Trump election is that we have reconnected with the fact that like, oh, this new America isn't going to just manifest itself. Like we have to make it happen. Like I think 2008 Obama, people got really excited and we all thought that was a huge landmark. And it was, it was historic, but it takes work to then deliver on not just a headline, but actual like policy and change uh, to, to deliver the change, not just the hope. And so I think um, what is unusual about right now is that the backlash to the backlash is much faster and much stronger than it's ever been before in American history. That Trump was inevitable in in certain respects, whether his election um, and his ascent into the actual White House, that wasn't necessarily, but his rise as a politician was inevitable after the election of Barack Obama because white supremacy always punches back when it is most threatened whether it's the assassination of Martin Luther King and the rise of the Southern strategy, or it's the rise of Trump post Obama or Jim Crow after the reconstruction, like white supremacy always punches back and it tries to take hold of institutions of power when it does so. And what's striking about this is that this, the backlash to the backlash happens like literally the day after Trump's inauguration, right? We have the women's March. Um, So to the broader question though, about does the social mission have any cost and like what cost might that be? I really, I think we start to underestimate. um, I think we start to overestimate the extreme right and underestimate set the center independent swingable voters that I think the base on the left is incredibly fired up and engaged. And when I look at Virginia, I think, Um, And I haven't done like super thorough numerical breakdowns, but I think one of the things that was most telling about 2017 was not like, I mean, there was a surge in millennial and college age voters. Absolutely. Mad props to next gen for the work they do there, but it was also people who normally have no need to vote outside of presidential election cycles who were so pissed off. They knew what every single election date might be within for their locality. And they showed up for all of it. And then they were so fired up if like they at least showed up to vote, they probably organized some sort of meet and greet or even better, probably organized some sort of volunteering. And that part, um, people want to be part of a movement. People want to get excited about feeling as connected to their neighbors and feel like they're taking something back even while they wait for the electoral gains to show up. I think that's been something that's really important for the left to have during the fight was immediate sources of community that we haven't necessarily tried to cultivate or connect with in a while. So the energy that comes from pursuing the social mission to the extent, and again, I, I, I mean, I think I have been, I mean, the, the, you know, the, the Ausfeld piece that I cited at, uh, from, from Michigan isn't the only one. Uh, again, this is not actually in the state of Michigan, although I think part of the study was, but there clearly are some voters who can, who can be turned away from the less supportive of Democrats when Democrats pursue their social mission. There's some data to this, but the argument is, 
the political cost to that is significantly lower than failing to properly pursue the social mission, which the Democratic Party at times has done. We haven't been as as active or as vocal or uh, and certainly as inclusive in our own prospect. Right? We've had a lot of white guys talking about how important the social mission is, which is very different from having from actually sharing uh, the party and and sharing government with people who come from those communities. I think it's also telling, uh, um, Ellie, what you said about how this is what they hold on to because this is all that they have left. They've lost all of their substance. Like, I think the right, this, this is a unique moment for the right in that one of the things that is fun, a fundamental strength for us and the right constantly turns our strengths against us um, and forces us, to, forces us to have conversations defending things that like, we shouldn't be wasting our time defending. Um, because they're like, just everybody should vote is like, just shouldn't need to be defended in an electoral democracy like America, um, and other fundamental things. And so the right turns our strengths against us and makes something as I think inspiring and dynamic as our social mission and turns it into identity politics and divisiveness. And it's like, we're not the ones being divisive. They are, but they forced us now to have this conversation on their terms and that, I think, is where they succeed, is that they distract us and they force us into a defensive ground instead of a space where we're presenting an affirmative vision of what this mission and what success would look like. Yeah, it's interesting that, that that's sort of where this conversation has gone, because uh, when Frank and I talked about this show earlier in the week, it's, this is actually where we started this conversation, um, clowning on Father Duthate's article in, uh, in the New York Times. Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> Let me just roll my eyes more dramatically and narrate yeah. this. So listen. Yeah, to. I'm not. I'm not entirely sure that you can catch the the full sound effect of actually Nigga's eyes rolling back into her head uh, in, in purely audio. Uh, but those of you who may or may not have read this piece, and if you haven't, um, I, I wouldn't. Don't bother. Don't. Yeah, I, I wouldn't. It, no. it, it, it no. Save yourself. But, but this is and and and. But I bring it up in the context of sort of this is how Frank and I started talking about this. So this idea of is the left owning itself? Um, are we just uh, are we creating environments and situations when we get so ginned up over fighting every little detail of you know the identity politics or wherever else it is? We're just giving fodder to the right to make a bigger deal of something than than the left may actually consider it to be a big deal. Like I don't know anybody on the left that's pushing for robotic sex slaves, but there was a professor that had an idea about the redistribution of sex or whatever the hell it was. I honestly couldn't follow the logic of the piece because it was both stupid was, and poorly written simultaneously. Yeah. I mean, it was but, a real double in that respect, wasn't yeah, it? I mean, he's a double threat at least is our, is our doubt that also, uh, also stupid, poorly written and morally bankrupt. So that really makes him the triple threat that he is. He's, he's the Michael Jordan of, of writing badly. I mean, if James Bennett wants to start listening to our podcast, I mean, we can basically say that the entire New York Times op-ed page hits all three of those things, regardless if you're the conservative conservative writer or the, the, the liberal writer. Um, it's all just poorly written. Like, sentence structure really matters. And there are words in this language that are useful and you should use them. And, you know, an M dash doesn't make you smart using it every other sentence. Uh, but all that being aside, that basically brings back to this, this con the, to, to the conversation of the, is the left owning itself by making a big deal out of every little thing. And I don't mean to belittle things by, by saying it that way. There's, but it, it 
if the if we have now just determined that the right is stuck with just a small bucket of things that they can go after and they're going to go after every single one of it what does it say that the democrats are kind of you know i think i use the analogy with frank it's not even like you know it's a slow pitch softball like we're putting it on a t-ball thing so i think I think both yes and no. And I don't think it's necessarily that we're self-owning. I think it's more just like we just, again, like we just, we engage on their terms instead of stepping back and engaging on the issue on our terms. The one thing I'll say about the, just that, however you say his last name. Um, thing the right is, reverend. We can just, we'll just call him the reverend. Uh, yeah. I don't want to give him the credit of right. Um, <laughs> one of the issues with his, um, with his piece in particular was that, He's so uninformed. Like people have been writing about this, like the misogyny and the rank misogyny on the right and in, in, in internet forums and this whole concept of how bankrupt the whole concept of involuntarily celibate is for years. Like this came up with Gamergate. Women have been talking about this on the internet for years. And he just rolled up like, hmm, these are some interesting ideas. And it's like, no, we've passed this out. They're wrong. There's nothing here. I can't believe you had to write so badly for so long about a concept that the internet has litigated and relitigated and put to rest and you're like just discovering and didn't even bother to do the research or credit the people who have been doing the research on this movement and have been doing the work and have been victims of these people for years online and so that i think like it needed to be engaged with and he needed to be smacked down by people on the internet because all of a sudden he wasn't the only one there are all these people who were like in the mainstream press who were trying to talk about um, like the misogyny on the internet in the right and like had no idea what they were talking about and didn't bother to reach out to the actual experts on these topics. Sure. So, sorry, go ahead, Frank. Sorry, no, no, forgive me. But, but I just, you know, you're, you're, ab you're absolutely right about this. And the, in part, what is, and the, I think the reason the Douthat example is such a good one, like why that was a good one to respond to and why I actually I think we were sort of morally called as well as personally inclined to crap all over it, because what he had done through everything you just described was to perpetuate a pattern that we know, like there are receipts that the alt-right, and again, the, uh, the genesis for, you know, for, for our listeners who may not necessarily know this, uh, there's a, an Irish writer called Angela Nagel who wrote a, a good book about the alt-right called Kill All Normies that traces the the genesis of them as an online community. And again, they're very fractured. They fight amongst themselves because these are very angry people. But the genesis of them, we think of them as a white supremacist, as a white supremacist leaning, many of them are. The core of all of them is actually misogyny. That's that like that was her find it. That's where it came from. Not all alt-right people are white supremacists, although again, a lot are. Uh, but but misogyny is ubiquitous in that space. Uh, yes. And yeah. So they have like, and, and there is there, you know, there's documentation, there are receipts on this shit that the way they launder their bankrupt ideas is by yes. first finding someone in academia or someone who's quasi respectable to put forward some slightly academic version of whatever hateful bullshit they're touting. And then that gets talked about in mainstream news media. So for example, you can have a bunch of super violent, incredibly poisonous people online, the incels talking about, you know, the need various ways of redistributing sex, although the terms they use are a lot more violent than that. And then, you know, a professor from George Mason writes a little piece about, oh, like sexual capital and sexual redistribution. This is interesting. Fucking raw, the right reverend doubt that puts it up on the New York Times. Wrong and reverend, the wrong reverend. The wrong reverend doubt that is up there. And, uh, you know, it puts it up on the New York Times. And suddenly we're faced with the choice of like, do we just let it pass? That, you know, that the, that the New York Times is 
is essentially putting a laundered version of incel uh, of incel ideology on the New York Times. It's ridiculous. So that's why it's like, so to my mind, this is a really good example because that one is 100% worth responding to and crapping all over. In contrast, I think the conflict around Michelle Wolf's remarks at the White House Correspondents' Dinner, I was just like, like, I refused to retweet anything about it because I was like, this is a distraction. Michelle Wolf said the truth and like Mika and Maggie and I don't know who was Andrea, like they're just upset because she rightfully called them out for their complicity in the election of Donald Trump and the choices they made as media personalities to make him seem normal. So fine, if you want to like get, like they want to get all up in a tizzy and make this seem like it's about something it's not, that's fine. But I know what it's about. The rest of us who watch it know what it's about. And it's like so niche, like it's the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Like our Twitter universes blew up about it. 99% of America does not know what happened and did not care and probably watched the monologue and laughed and agreed with Michelle Wolf. Could any was a phenomenal be, monologue. Yeah, it was great. It was Could anything be less relevant than the White House Correspondents' Dinner? I mean, my God. Yeah, that was a, exactly. that was a stupefying outbreak of alt-centrism right there. One of the symptoms of which, as we know, is condemning lack of civility when someone speaks an uncomfortable truth. Well, it also, I mean, this is, this is an ongoing conversation, you know, for our listeners, if you didn't already know, Frank is based in DC, I'm, I'm based up here in New York. And uh, although I've spent a great deal of my career in DC at certain times, Monday to Thursday at weeks on end, one of the things, and it really only became clear to me after the Michelle Wolf thing and a few other issues that have come up over the last six months is DC lacks the ability to laugh at itself and the sense of humor the right never had a sense of humor, but the sense of humor on the left, the fact that it's disappearing or now things are being caged in certain ways worries me. Because there's, they, there, there's offensive funny and people can identify what offensive, things that are offensive and funny. And then there are things that are just funny and, you know, maybe just laugh a little. Like if I post a picture of Mark Zuckerberg sitting on a high chair in front of the Senate committee because they wanted him to sit higher in his chair. Like, that's just funny. That's not something that you need to then turn into, but he was complicit in X, Y, and Z. And I, and I worry about, I, I worry about society in general that can no longer laugh at itself, but that's a whole meta point. I would agree with you with the exception that there's i I'm sorry. The first thing that I'm thinking of is actually the Dave Chappelle and Ricky Gervais controversies around their, jokes at the expense of transgender um, individuals. Yeah. And I like, I think it is important for people to express outrage so that bad things don't become normalized. And because if people aren't expressing outrage at jokes made that perpetuate systemic injustices, then like, we're never good. Like, it's just, it's just, we gotta, we have to fight the battle on many fronts. And so people got to get mad and say like, just stop. And in particular, when I'm thinking of like Dave Chappelle, I think this was like, three specials like it was an arc around transgender um, or jokes at the expense of transgender individuals that spanned three different specials that's just like dude didn't have to yeah. happen yeah you, you got to stop that yeah yeah like it just it doesn't have to be this like you're just choosing at this point not to learn and you think that your joke is more important than like the livelihoods and existences of other people right um and i like come on dave Chappelle can't find another topic to joke about for 20 minutes the beginning of his first special was literally about how he's so good at this he like pulls punchlines out of a bowl and then tries to make a joke to get to that punchline like he's he's funny enough he doesn't need to make those jokes and he's making a place to make those jokes and as we think about how to respond to 
potential outrages of one sort or another. And, and you know, and God knows we are the owned, trolled, and furious. There's more than enough legitimate outrages to go around. Uh, but as we think about this, I think you know one heuristic that I have found helpful is think about who you're defending. Uh, you know, so if you are, if if you're if you're going after goddamn Father Douthat, uh, God, I'm not letting this thing go. But if you are, who are you defending? If you're attacking, what you're defending is women. What you're defending is the sexual agency of women. If you're attacking Father Douthat, because that's what he's attacking. If you're going after Dave Chappelle and saying, "Hey, this is this is bad, and you need to stop doing this. It's outrageous." You're defending uh, transgendered people, right? If you are, you know, and that. If you are going, if you're if you're attacking Ellie Jacobs for having made a joke about Mark Zuckerberg, who are you defending? <laughs> Zuckerberg, because he could look after himself, right? So, and this is like occasionally, a go, occasionally go a little bit overboard, and 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 that's and and this is and and that is partly because we're all ginned up and our adrenaline is always running and we're always free. Like I get that. Like there's friendly fire on the left all the time. Uh, that's fine, but think about my. But the heuristic of think about who you're defending, I think, is a is a is a good way of keep. It's a good way of backing yourself up. It's the easiest thing to do. Much harder to actually find someone who is being attacked and and step up for them. I think it's also that actually. Um, sorry, bringing this back around to some of the electoral stuff, which is that I think one of the um, one of the things that we forget when it comes to the social justice mission is that it, it is more, it is not just compelling to marginalized groups. It is compelling to the people who actually are their allies and the people who think they are their allies that like when you present, I mean, part of why I think Obama was successful was the moment that he showed up in the country, like people were craving this hope and change narrative and a positive like um, affirmation of who, who and what America was and could be and should be and so it appealed to lots of people who were adjacent and wasn't people you know the i'm, I'm going to write off for the purposes of electoral politics we all acknowledge that there's 30 percent of the right that's just completely unwinnable and i'm not gonna like i'm not trying to win those but that there's a hefty there's a, a significant portion in the middle who are the people who Frankly, like when Cheerios has a multiracial family, like those are the people that Cheerios is going after. The people who might not be in a multiracial family, might not even have any black friends or know any black people, but like to think that they're progressive and like to think that this represents an America they, they like to see. And so that ad is as much for white Americans who want to be part of an inclusive America as it is for people like me who are biracial and are excited to finally see like a family that looks like mine in a random ass television ad. And that I think we're at a point, certainly for millennials, that like advertising that targets millennials heavily overrepresents any and all marginalized groups they can possibly find because the younger generation likes to see something that represents their ideals. You might be an absolute shit ally. You might never stand up to your crazy uncle at Thanksgiving and say that was racist, but you still like seeing that advertising and you like somebody reminding you that this is the world you could live in and are living in. Are you suggesting that Pepsi isn't a huge force for social good? Suggesting everyone should get a pony. No, (laughs) this is, this is, this is absolutely right. And, and, and I think 
it's it's a good place. It's a good place to leave it here for today. Uh, this is clearly a conversation that's going to continue. Uh, with, you know, strangely, we have not solved the Democratic Party's uh, continuing evolution on the social mission this afternoon. Uh, but but I think it, this is but this has been a really really good conversation. I'd like we'd like to have you back to to continue it because there will a there will be fresh reasons to and and, and b it's just a longer conversation that you can get into one episode. Always happy to. Yeah, with, so primary, you, with primary season upon us, the, the yeah. time is nigh. Yeah, yeah. The, t- the time for arguments, good and stupid, is, is, has never been better. Yeah, folks, we are entering a period of dumbest timeline America that will make previous times look just mildly stupid. Yeah, it's going to be great. Yeah. Hat tip oh. Don Blankenship. Sorry. Yes. Oh, my God. Yes. I, I just, just – Don Blankenship – so Don Blankenship is running for Senate in West Virginia. Previously, he was the CEO of a mining company. So we'll leave aside from the fact that he was profiting off killing children because of burning coal. Um, and I'm not a lunatic environmentalist. I'm just saying that as a fact. Uh, but over during his tenure of, the, of, of this mining company, 29 miners were killed. He spent 18 months in jail, um, basically for being complicit in their death. Uh, and And he, according to polling today, he is now in the lead for... Um, the Republican uh, nomination for to run against uh, Joe Manchin in, in, this fall for senator in West Virginia, and that all those words just came out of my mouth is just other level dumb. Well, and, and somebody was pointing out on Twitter, I can't remember who, that uh, he wants us to keep talking about how racist he is because otherwise we'd be talking about how he's a convicted felon. Yeah, about how many coal miners he's killed. Yeah, these, the, yeah, yeah. Good, good people of West Virginia. I do know we have some listeners out there. I know you're on the right side of this thing, so please don't take this personally. When I, when I say good people of West Virginia, please do not uh, let the uh, the apple that grew from the train, uh, the tree that grew from the Battle of Mate One, fall this far from the tree. All right, we turn now to the lightning round. Ah. Right. Next, we've done the lightning round with you before. Um, so, but but I think you know our, we discover new things all the times that we all the new, new things that we enjoy all the time. Uh, so we are going to dive into this uh, very quickly, and so we will start with question one: a piece of culture that you have enjoyed recently that you would recommend to our listeners. Oh goodness! Um, so I'm going to actually do two. First of all, is Janelle Monae's "Dirty Computer," which I put forth as album of the summer, and then also it literally dropped in the last 24 hours. Donald Glover's slash Childish Gambino's "This Is America." I'm, st- I'm still reflecting on it, but the music, like the music video, like watch the video because the visuals are as important as the lyrics. Awesome! All right, a food or a drink that you've had recently that you commend to our listeners' attention. Oh, uh, well, this is unfortunate for many of your listeners because they won't get to partake in it. But Frank, your plantains were quite scrumptious. I know Angela will have lots of thoughts, but I thought they were wonderful and I greatly enjoyed them and your incredibly well-seasoned chicken. Oh, thank you so much. That 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 means a lot to me for a variety of reasons. Fried plantains, folks. Uh, they, you know, get them, let them, uh, let them ripen up nicely. Fry them in a little bit of uh, vegetable oil. It's good stuff. Uh, anyway, anyway, if I can do it, anyone can do it. Uh, here we go. This is the LA question. When it comes to sandwiches, eat them in triangles or squares? Triangles. Yeah. It's easier mm. for biting. Also, no tomatoes. Tomatoes threaten the structural integrity of sandwiches and burgers, and I'm very against them. Mm, on sandwiches. I, I, I can, I can, I'm there with you on that. 
Yeah, I actually opposed this. I considered that a a, a hot take of the of, of the most outrageous <laughs> sort. Well, I'm looking forward to fighting Look, with this. That's you and your normal brain. This is me that's and Ellie in our that's galaxy. That's, that's, exactly, that's exactly right. But I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll give it some time. I'll think it through. All right. In the uh, in the Trump era, lots of people are interested in doing something. Uh, what's an organization that you recommend supporting and why? Uh, the Equal Justice Initiative. And I think you should not just support with your dollars. I think everybody should go to Montgomery, Alabama and visit uh, the Legacy Museum and the Peace and Justice Memorial because uh, it is a reckoning with Amer- the truths of a- and tragedy of American history. And it is an incredibly powerful experience, uh, the way that uh, legacy is presented to you when you experience them. So Equal Justice Initiative, Legacy Museum, and Peace and Justice Memorial. Here, here. Thanks for people who want to uh, follow your, your thoughts and insights. Where can they follow you online? I am literally niggest on every conceivable platform because it is shockingly always available when I need a username. So it is N as in Nancy, G as in girl, I as T as in telephone, E as an elephant, niggest. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all of it. All right. All right. This is, this has been great. Niggas, thank you so much for joining us. And, and there's obviously a lot here to pick up and, and continue converse, conversing about in the future. Uh, in the meantime, uh, if people would like to continue to hear our podcast, they should subscribe and rate us on iTunes or wherever they listen to us. Follow us on Twitter at taking ship. Um, and that's P as in plausible. Um, and our new website, takingship.com where you can also let us know about uh, what size t-shirt and how many you would like. Uh, Because again, as Frank and I decided last week, uh, t-shirts and whiskey have much more in common than they do not have in common. And we're just going to continue pushing that message. So with all that, Frank, where are we headed this week? This week, I'm pleased to report that we are able to, uh, to take ship to recognize a hero of the war on the sea which, as we know, is the most important conflict uh, presently facing humanity, the only conflict uh, outside of politics, of course, that is worth, uh, worth our time. Uh, that we are, so we head this week to Australia, where recently a dingo was pictured feasting on the carcass of his fallen foe, a shark. Also, there were uh, two snakes procreating in the foreground of the picture, making it the most Australian thing that has ever happened anywhere. Uh, it was absolutely delightful, but I want people have said that this shark had died elsewhere, washed up, and the dingo was just scavenging on it. But I refuse to believe this is the case. I think this is more pro sea propaganda, trying to deprive us of one of our great heroes. I think this dingo, uh, I think this dingo uh, took you know, took. Uh, took strong action on behalf of the terrestrial armies. I think it uh, I think it saw that shark. I think it dove in. I think it did what it had to do. I think it dragged it in and I think it was eating it on the beach as a lesson to the other sharks about what happens if you get too close to the shoreline. Uh, and for that the dingo must be given uh, must be given a medal, uh, the name of which we will conjure on the way over. We should have a fair amount of time. I understand it's a fairly quick flight to Australia, but you know, I'm sure we'll we'll conjure up a medal for it by the time we get there. Uh, so we go to recognize we go to Australia to recognize uh, a dingo. Uh, yes, to go recognize a dingo as a hero of the war on the sea. Friends, we take ship for Australia. Take care, everybody.